0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we pivot to that period right after the president expired, that solemn but chaotic collection of events that occurred at Parkland Hospital right after silence began in Trauma Room 1. So, without further ado, let's listen to Episode 56. Pray. Pray. Pray for him. Those were the words of Cardinal Cushing, the priest who was closest to President Kennedy. Those were the words that the aging Cardinal would send out from Boston to each of the parishes that made up the Archdiocese. Even though he was a Cardinal, he was still a mere mortal, and so he had not yet learned what had already happened. The President was dead. It would soon be known to all. From the very moment that the President's car arrived in Parkland, all of the players that were already involved, including the Secret Service agents and others who had seen what had occurred at that moment in Dealey Plaza, well, they knew that the end had already come, or, if not yet, that it was near. In Boston, Cardinal Cushing would enter his private chapel, accompanied by a chosen few, and beg God to save the President's life. But God already had bigger things in store for John Fitzgerald Kennedy. It was true that Father Oscar Huber was to give the last rites and perhaps be the more recognizable of the priests in this passion play, but there were two priests that day that went to Parkland and the first priest to receive a communication was Father James N. Thompson. He'd been sitting in the recreation room at Holy Trinity's Rectory and heard the UPI bulletins about the president's shooting. It was alarming, to say the least. By 1245, Secret Service Agent Clint Hill and Secret Service Agent Reddy knew that there was a need to call a priest. And in those chaotic moments that were unfolding— Agent Reddy would determine the closest parish to the hospital and place a call to Father Thompson. Both Father Thompson and Father Huber climbed into the car together, and they took the short ride to the hospital from where they were located. These two parish priests, never had they done something so spectacular as to give Mass for a president or a major dignitary. But now, they were being called as agents of God to play their part that day. They wondered, particularly given the circumstances, if they would need some form of help to navigate what surely would be an intense security circumstance at the hospital. They knew what they had been called for. The president was in critical condition and was perhaps even dying. In the world of Christianity and Catholicism, last rites are a final and very sacred sacrament. In Christianity, the last rites, also known as the commendation of the dying, are the last prayers and ministrations given to an individual of the faith, and they are done, when possible, shortly before death. Last rites cannot be performed on someone who has already died. Extreme unction, or final anointing, is the name given to the anointing of the sick when received during last rites. Hospital emergency rooms are filled with a paradoxical theological question of when life ends, when a catastrophic event occurs. And why is that important, you say, in this story? You see, at the moment life ends, this part of a priest's role ends too that is, when it comes to delivering the last rites, because then, upon death, he is a man handed over to God. He is then in the hands of the Creator, and not a mere mortal here on earth. It is then that a man's soul leaves his body and ascends. But what if a priest arrives to give the extreme unction, the last rites, to a dying man, and he's already gone? The dilemma is, of course, a determination of whether or not that is so, whether or not the patient is still living or already dead. Dr. Baxter was cognizant of this. He was head of the emergency room at Parkland, and he knew the scene all too well when death arrived. As the medical attempts came to an end, he said to others in Trauma Room 1 that we had better find Mrs. Kennedy. They would wait to pronounce the president dead until the priests could come in and give the president his last rites. Despite the good efforts of the doctors to formally pronounce him dead after the last rites, well, at that moment, the words of conditional absolution appeared in the vernacular of Father Huber. As he bent down to begin the process, Father Huber spoke those words of conditional absolution into the ear of the President, and the grimace would immediately appear on Jackie's face. Conditional, she thought. The physical trauma was real, invisible. The President's body had been decimated by two shots, and one of them fatal. And then, then it was over. And now it was time for true faith to take over the circumstance. And in this one important moment, the priests could say and do only what the Church would allow them to do. It is for God to forever know if the President's soul was yet still there at the moment those words were whispered. Father Huber would soon step away and rejoin Father Thompson, and they would gather themselves up and begin the exit out of Parkland. The President's death, with all of its ramifications, was now a national security concern. In the fog of this event, the military and security apparatus of the government would begin to kick in starting right there at Parkland. The U.S. Army Signal Corps would commandeer all outgoing lines at the hospital, first as a security measure and also to maintain communication. On their way down the corridor, a member of the Kennedy team would stop Fathers Huber and Thompson, looking them straight in the eye and giving them a clear order of sorts, in the only way that one can speak to a priest in that way. There was an admonishment for both Father Huber and Father Thompson asking them not to speak to anyone about this, that is, that the President was dead, and to be silent at least for the moment on what they had seen inside of Trauma Room 1. The narrative to be included in the announcements of the president's death were now to be carefully controlled for the sake of the nation. Seemingly, the two priests understood what was being said to them as they hurried to make their way back to their car. Most assuredly, their exit from the hospital would be met by a throng of reporters, and it was— Hugh City, the tenacious reporter who was Time's White House correspondent, was right there waiting to apply his tenacious style. And he did. He would call the proximate question to the mortal men of God who were now exiting the play. Is the president dead, he would ask? Father Huber would turn and answer the question, only moments after having received instructions from the president's cadre. Instructions to avoid the temptation but he could not. And he would answer Hughes City very plainly and very clearly. Oh yes, he's dead all right. It was, in fact, the first public announcement of the president's death, but it wasn't to make its way instantaneously onto the airways, which the president's team was thankful for. Already by this time, the inevitable and the practical were beginning. Dr. Jenkins, trapped for a moment in trauma room one as Jackie laid final kisses on the President's body and exchanged rings with the President, had a bird's-eye view as Father Huber administered last rites and prayed with Jackie. With these solemn moments completed, Jenkins would then be left to work on the first order of business after one is declared dead on the stretcher. He would begin to disattach the EKG leads and remove the various tubes and medical equipment that had been inserted in and connected to the president's body in that desperate attempt to save him. A small cloth sheet, not large enough to cover him from his toes to his head, was then drawn up to cover the better part of his body. In just moments, the next step would begin. The next step bolus of solemn work, the work of cleaning up the blood on the president's body and wrapping the president's body more comprehensively so that it could be placed in a casket and readied for transport to its next location. In just a few minutes, the movement of the body would be the source of an ugly confrontation. In the medico-legal world of patients, a doctor's practice ceases at the point the patient expires, No longer is it the practice of medicine. The reins are turned over to others, those qualified and assigned to handling the corpse, and in the case of an unnatural death, an autopsy by the coroner. It gets even more complicated if there is a murder. Murder is a capital crime, and it falls even today under the jurisdiction of the law of each state. As we have explained in previous episodes, In 1963, there was no federal law that made it a crime to shoot and kill the president. Things have changed since then, but at that moment, that moment in Dallas, the murder of the president was a crime that was subject to the jurisdiction of the state of Texas. It required an autopsy performed by the medical examiner of Dallas County, Texas. It didn't matter that the victim was the president of the United States of America, By law, that autopsy was to be performed right there in Dallas. Jackie had gone in and out of trauma room one in those tumultuous 20 minutes. She was, at one moment, by herself, sitting in a chair outside of the trauma room. In the moments after the president's death, Jackie would be joined by the president's personal physician, George Berkeley, who could hardly hold back the sobbing that came with the moment. Secret Service agent Roy Kellerman would confer with Berkeley and Mrs. Kennedy, even though the horror of the event had cast her into a tremendous fog. She was functioning with a discipline that perhaps only Jacqueline Kennedy could have displayed at that moment on that day. One thing she knew, she was not leaving Dallas without her husband's body. She would not leave his side as they made their way back to Washington together. She would whisper this to Kenny O'Donnell. He would, in turn, say to Clint Hill and Andy Berger and Dr. Berkeley, let's get a coffin. Berkeley turned to the administrator of Parkland, Jack Price, and said that he wanted the best undertaker in Dallas and the best bronze coffin they could offer up. There were others nearby who heard the conversation, including the president's very loyal secretary, Evelyn Lincoln and Mary Gallagher, who traveled with Jackie Kennedy. They had been sobbing and hadn't yet heard that the President was dead. This was their turn to hear. The need for a coffin said it all. Well, it was decided then. It was now up to Kellerman and others to get the President's body out of Parkland and on its way with Mrs. Kennedy back to Washington. Kenny O'Donnell and others on the inside of the President's team would confer and agree. It was back to Washington. Undoubtedly, Jacqueline Kennedy's wishes were to take priority in the minds of the Secret Service and the Irish Mafia, but it was also mostly because that wish was consistent with the natural security concerns that were immediately engulfing the government at that moment. Was this a conspiracy? Who were they, these killers? Who was behind it, and how far were they willing to go? Was Lyndon Johnson a target, too? Were the men responsible trying to take down the entire government of the United States? Was it a focused gesture of the far right that so hated Kennedy, and that many of them called Dallas their home? Or was it something much more sinister? Could the Soviets be involved? Was this the beginning of a much more dastardly moment for the American people and the world? These and other thoughts were very real at that moment on November 22nd at Parkland. Thankfully, the violence was over, and something bigger never came. But just two days later, on Sunday, the accused assassin would then be taken down too. Surely this was not bigger, but it was clearly pointing to something more sinister. The world was on fire for the answer too what in the hell was really going on? As the president expired, the enormity of the moment was overtaking everyone in trauma room one. As the sacrament of the last rites ended, Kenny O'Donnell came to Jackie's side and tried to persuade Jackie to leave the room as they were now going to prepare the president for his trip home. But she wouldn't leave. She was staying with John Fitzgerald Kennedy for the rest of the journey. Vice President Johnson, after the arrival of his car at Parkland, had been ushered quickly past Trauma Room 1 down the hall where he was to wait for about the next 20 minutes with very little information on what exactly was happening with the president and exactly what condition the president was in. Eventually, Kenny Donnell would emerge in the room that the president occupied and he would look at Johnson and say, Mr. President, We need to get you back to Washington. It was Kenny O'Donnell's way of saying to Johnson that President Kennedy had expired. He would solemnly add as a punctuation, He's gone. Johnson then asked about Jackie, and O'Donnell at that very moment would also tell Johnson that Jackie was not going back to Washington without having the President's body with her. Regardless, he advised Johnson that he should get going. Before they left, Lady Bird would approach Jackie, and among all the things that would happen in that intimate moment, Lady Bird asked Jackie if she wanted to change out of the blood-stained dress that she was now in. And it was at this moment that Jacqueline Kennedy would, for the first time, utter the words, No, I want the world to see what they have done to Jack. It would not be the last time she would be asked that, and say that, on her way back to Washington. Johnson, still in a whirlwind of thought, knew that there was a possibility of a conspiracy and asked if the announcement of the President's death could be withheld, until he himself was on his way back to Love Field. His staff knew that the conspiracy question was real at that moment and the depth of the attack was not yet known. It was wise to comply, and Johnson would quickly begin his dash back to Air Force One. O'Donnell and others had also advised Johnson that he should return to Washington on Air Force One rather than the plane reserved for the vice president. Malcolm Kilduff, the assistant White House press secretary and the ranking press secretary on the president's trip to Dallas, would wait until Johnson was safely in the car and on the way to the airport and then enter Parkland Classroom 101-102. The room had been converted into a temporary room to handle all the press that had gathered at Parkland. When Kilduff entered the room, the shouting began as he approached the dais at 1.33 Central Standard Time. Then you could hear the crowd say, quiet, quiet. Even so, nervous conversation continued in the crowd. As the room quieted, Kilduff, clearly engulfed in nervousness over the announcement and most assuredly feeling so many other emotions, would stand tall before the group and say, President John F. Kennedy died at approximately one o'clock Central Standard Time today here in Dallas. What Kilduff said about two minutes later in response to a reporter's question would be a de facto testimony for the conspiracy theorists from that moment forward until this modern day. He would use his right index finger and point to the forward area of his right temple, where he thought the gunshot entered the head. He would answer the reporter, It was a simple matter, Tom, of a bullet right through the head. The words are one thing, but what was caught on camera, the visual was unmistakable, and it was that someone had shot the president in the front portion of the right temple. Or at least, at that very moment, that is what Kilduff thought, and the theatrics of it were unmistakable. Why did he say that? Had he seen the shot? Who told him the shot came from the front or the right? Were the doctors opining on that? None of the controversy was yet present, as it is today. This was, literally, the beginning of the story and the mystery. But it would not be long before it was front and center in the world's news. The door to Trauma Room 1 was now closed. The more intimate process of getting the president's body ready for this next leg of the trip was well underway. There with the president was Doris Nelson and Margaret Hindcliffe, who were washing the president's body. Dave Sanders, who was an orderly, was also there too, and was cleaning up the room and mopping the floor and gathering up dirty instruments. These humble hospital workers would fill the utter helplessness of the moment. They would try to comfort Jackie Kennedy by offering her a glass of water or a cup of coffee or a place to sit down. As she lingered there in the room while they performed their tasks. She politely declined. In a matter of a few more minutes, the president's body would be ready to go. While Agent Reddy would be calling the priest, Clint Hill would be tasked with another grisly matter, finding a casket. At the moment Mrs. Kennedy uttered that she was not leaving without her husband's body going with her, she whispered that into Kenny O'Donnell's ear. And at that moment, O'Donnell leaned over and said to Clint Hill, Andy Berger, and Dr. Berkeley, who were all there, Let's get a coffin. Dr. Berkeley looked at Jack Price, the Parkland administrator, and said, I want the best undertaker in Dallas and the best bronze coffin. For whatever reason, Price seemed to hesitate, and after a verbal exchange that still left Price asking detailed questions about what they wanted exactly, an aggravated Berkeley had heard enough of Administrator Price's worldly questions and hedging, and he growled back at Price's final question about what type of casket he should ask for, saying directly to him, I don't give a damn. Just get one. Steve Landergren passed by about this time, and Clint Hill grabbed his arm, saying, We have to get a casket. They would quickly track down and call a nearby funeral home, but they would have to go through an ordeal first to find a telephone line out of the hospital that was functional and could overcome the paralysis that occurred when the circuits began to overload at Southwest Bell. After going to social services and getting the number for the nearest funeral home, they would then run from room to room searching for a telephone that actually had a dial tone, one they could get through on a line. Landagrand finally found one. They then called the O'Neill Funeral Home in Oakland, run by proprietor Vernon O'Neill. O'Neill also ran an ambulance service in Dallas. Inside the funeral home, the phone rang about 1246 Central Standard Time, which was only about 16 minutes after the president was shot and just a few minutes after the presidential limousine had arrived at Parkland. Vernon O'Neill answered, and he would hear a voice on the other end with a strained sense of urgency. Agent Hill would quickly explain that they would need the best casket he had at the funeral home, and it would need to be transported to the hospital as soon as possible. O'Neill was an entrepreneur of sorts, if there is such a thing in the undertaking business. He had seven radio-equipped hearses and a central dispatcher. All the hearses were white, And for that reason, they did double duty. O'Neill was of the opinion that death shouldn't be a depressing thing, so the white hearses promoted that. And for the entrepreneur in him, well, they also allowed his business to turn a small red sign on in the window of those hearses and convert them from a hearse carrying the remains of a loved one to a vehicle carrying a living person to a hospital. His ambulance contract covered the eastern portion of the city, and it was a nice concession to have. He had the contract to transport patients east of the Trinity River. It was a busy funeral home and an even busier ambulance transport business. O'Neill had been listening to the police radios, and he would ask only one question of Clint Hill. Is this for the President? Hill answered back, It's for the President of the United States. O'Neill got to work immediately, pulling his top casket off the showroom floor. Only he had the good luck of having 17 of his 18 employees out to lunch that day at the time of the call. Just he and his dispatcher were left to mind the store, so to speak, as the rest of the crew was off. The casket he chose was of the highest quality, and it weighed more than two men themselves could handle, so he waited for a third, and one shortly arrived back from lunch. Together, they would all load the behemoth of a casket into his brand new Cadillac hearse. The casket was solid bronze, and it was top of the line, having its own name, the Britannia, and it was manufactured by the Elgin Casket Company. It was double-walled, and it could be hermetically sealed, and it weighed close to 800 pounds, empty. The Kennedy men would get a feel of how heavy the casket was as they themselves would soon be hoisting it up onto Air Force One. O'Neill and the casket company said it was fit for a king, and the king would soon be inside. Money is no object in the midst of a tragedy, but funeral homes are businesses too. The price of this casket was $3,995, which was. A considerable amount of money in those days, as a many wanderer payment of funeral expenses in nineteen sixty three was an irrelevant detail at the moment of the assassination, irrelevant to the entire world. But much later in nineteen sixty four when the cost of the casket had still not been paid for by anyone, Vernon O'Neill would engage in a somewhat embarrassing attempt to get the White House. And then finally, the Kennedy family to pay for the casket, as that detail was lost in the aftermath of the tragedy. Sadly for Vernon O'Neill, the word got out and it would become a PR nightmare for him and his funeral business, which reportedly dropped almost 50% when the press got hold of the story that he was trying to collect for the casket. The reverberations of the assassination were felt in all shapes and forms. And even Vernon O'Brien felt the impact.
1: I have no other details regarding the assassination of the President. Uh, anything about the shooting? shooter? I no, we have no information mm-hmm. on that. Was Mrs. Kennedy here? Mrs. Kennedy was not hit. What was Connelly Connelly hit? Uh, Governor Connally was hit. Was Vice President Johnson hit? The Vice President was not hit. was Has the Vice President taken a oath? Uh, uh, no. Can we see him? Uh, he has left. Where are ready to I'm sorry for for reasons of security, I cannot discuss the whereabouts or travel plans of the Vice President. What's Connolly's condition? Uh, I understand that uh, Governor Connolly's condition uh, is satisfactory. He was shot twice, once apparently in the side and once in the wrist. Which one? Which leg? I'm sorry, Bob. I don't know. You say... It. The president was shot once. Where is Mrs. Kennedy? In the head. Uh, Mrs. Kennedy will be returning to uh, Washington. Back, to the back. Just, I, Was he, he no in arrival here? No, he was not. Back to consciousness? No, he did not. He did not lose consciousness? No, he, he did not, not regain consciousness. Back, where's Mrs. Kennedy going? Mrs. Kennedy going? Mrs. Kennedy will go 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 return go go to Washington. Washington. Yes. He's with her now. What, what uh, just, we're on the trip, Anything else wearing it? Get into individuals? No. When will the I beg your pardon? When will the new president be joined? As soon as possible. Where and when that will be, I cannot tell you. Will we be notified so we can be present? You will be noti- notified? It may, not, uh, it may not be in a place where you can be present. However, the the, the details, I'll make available to you, please. The uh, old Where should we go? Uh, I would suggest that you stay right here. Any further information, uh, I will either come up and give you myself, or I'll have Mr. Hawkes come up here Thank uh, you. We have a doctor. It's his Dr. Burton told me it's a simple matter, Tom, of, uh, of a bullet right through the head.
0: Thank you for listening to episode 56 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.